Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to 1 Samuel 24, 1 Samuel 24. If you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome all those who are joining us via our live stream. We're grateful for each and every one of you. Also, the venue service down the hall in Reach Church, DeSoto. We've got a lot going on here at Lenexa Baptist Church in the month of June. Uh, one mission team returning, another one going. Another one going Thursday, as Carlos said, to uh, South Sudan, Uganda. Um, uh, our collegiate students just got back from Utah. Our high school, junior high and high school students will be going to camp, not this week, but the following week. Uh, we got VBS at the end of the month. It's a fun time to be a part of Lenexa Baptist Church. And as Carlos said, if you've never been on a mission trip, go. Change your life forever. You'll not regret it. Uh, and if you're not active in what God is doing here at Lenexa Baptist Church, I'd tell you, get plugged in. It is exciting. Uh, Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's a whole lot more fun to participate. That's what God calls us to do. So get in the game. It is fun. When I play sports, I didn't want to sit on the bench. I did a lot of it. I'll tell you, I did. I sat on that bench a lot. I, I wanted to get in the game. And the good news about my faith in Jesus Christ is he says, you get to play. And you can get out there on the court. And you can have fun. And I'll work through you. And so you get in the game. You get involved. If you're not volunteering, if you're not active here, reach out to one of us as staff. We'll We'll find you a place to serve. We need you uh, to accomplish all that God has called us to do. Well, we come to 1 Samuel 24. We continue to see David running from uh, King Saul. We're going to see a lot of this. We're going to get all the way to uh, end of 1 Samuel, and he's still going to be on the run. But God is going to bring about his promises and his time and his way. We've determined now we're going to just continue on in 2 Samuel. So we're, to, we're not going to take a break. We'll in the second Samuel, and maybe in two, three years, we'll get done with Samuel. We'll get there at some point. But uh, I just thought you can't stop at first Samuel. You got to go on to second Samuel. We got to get the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. So we're going to continue on. But we're going to see David doing a lot of running over these next few chapters as Saul pursues him. And the question is, what's going on here? What, what, what's the deal? I mean, God's already pronounced that David will be king, and Saul's walking in disobedience. Is it difficult for God to put David in the role of king? Is that, is that a difficult thing for God? Let me assure you, it is not. <laughs> uh, we, we, you remember uh, Hannah and her song in uh, 1 Samuel 2. The Lord raises up, the Lord puts down. God can do whatever he wants to do. So why is this taking so long? Why are we dragging this deal out? Well, the issue is not establishing David as king. The issue is getting David ready to be king. And so God is going to mold him and shape him in the midst of tests and trials, growing him in to the man of God God called him to be. And so it is with all of us that know Jesus Christ, our personal Lord and Savior. God brings us through tests and trials, different things. And we wonder, why in the world, Lord, are you doing this? i tell you why God's doing it, because he's shaping us. And he knows he shapes us best, not in the midst of blessing, but in trial. Love to tell you today that in the midst of blessing, when everything's going smoothly, that's when I pursue God the most fervently, but that would be a lie. I'll tell you when I pray the most, when things are hard. And I don't know what the Lord's doing. And God pulls me in close. And he teaches me more about who he is. So... With that in mind, let's pray together, then we'll walk our way through this text. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, this time is a sacred moment when we as your people, we gather around the fire and the truth of your word. 
your word in so many ways. It's like fire. It refines, it exposes, it convicts, and it purifies. And I pray that your word would do that in our hearts today. Lord, I need you. Lord, help me to illuminate as you have worked in my heart this week to make plain the principles of this text. But Holy Spirit, we rely upon you. Holy Spirit, convict all of us. I don't know everybody in this room, but God, you know them all. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd work in each of their lives individually. You'd speak to them by means of your word that if they don't know you, convict them of sin and draw them to Jesus. If, for those of us that do know you, God, convict us and change us. Make us not simply hearers of the word, but doers. We come here today not to gain information. We can't come to be transformed by the renewing of our minds by the word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look with me. Verse 1, we'll read down through verse 3. Now, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David's in the wilderness of En Gedi. You remember... Um, Saul was pursuing David. He was right at the top of him. He's about to take him out. And God intervenes. He redirects uh, Saul. He has to go fight the Philistines. And uh, apparently he's had some success or some measure of success over the, push, the Philistines and pushing them back. And, and now he's told that David's in getting. He goes right back to pursuing uh, David. In verse 2, then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. Verse 3, he came to sheepfolds on the way, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself, and David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of a cave. Strange story. Uh, you picture this. David has been pushed out in the En Gedi, and he's on the run, constantly living in fear of his life. It's apparent that Saul's got informants everywhere, letting Saul know where David is at any given moment. So David's living in constant fear. He's being pushed out into the wilderness, thrust out into a place, and he's been in these caves, these enormous caves. Um, caves of Engedi are large enough for hundreds of men to go into these caves. In Aresis, you could even take your sheep into these gates, uh, caves, and you, they've had little springs that would flow from the rocks, and you have water. But they're dark, not a, not a real hospitable place to be in, but good enough to survive and a place of protection. So David has found security in the deep recesses of one of these caves, and listen, there's hundreds and thousands of these caves. David's in this cave, and you can just picture it, if you will. Uh, David's got his men, probably a few men. They're in the back, but they probably got a few men further up just kind of watching, seeing what's coming in this cave and what's occurring. And one of the men notices, hey, there's somebody coming in our cave. And they look a little closer. Well, you know, that's King Saul. It's crazy, Saul has been out there, he's chasing David, and nature calls. Do kings have to go to the bathroom? They got to go to the bathroom too, just like all of us. And so Saul's got to go to the bathroom. He's want a secure place, a little privacy. Sees a cave, looks good. Probably feels like he is as secure as a person could possibly be. He's in the deep recess of a cave, and he's got 6,000 men guarding the door to the bathroom. That's a pretty secure bathroom right there. 
And wouldn't you know it, he just so happens to pick a cave that David and his men are camping out in. You talk about getting caught with your pants down. That's where this, that phrase came from right here. I don't, I don't know. I have no idea. But, but there is Saul. Now think about this if you're David. And certainly we see that it's from his men. Because look in verse 4. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day which the Lord said to you. This is the day the Lord has made. Here it is. This is the day the Lord has said to you, Behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. David's men, they've been praying, Lord, kill Saul. Just kill this guy. Just take him out. Eliminate him so that we don't have to camp out in these caves anymore and don't have to run for our lives. God, this would be a whole lot easier. We know what you're going to do. Why don't you just eliminate him? They've been praying that prayer in accordance with God's word, and all of a sudden, Saul walks in as vulnerable as a person can possibly be right in front of them. And they're thinking, Lord, you couldn't have answered the prayer any better than here he is. The circumstances are providential. Make no mistake about it. God is sovereign. Saul didn't just so happen to pick this cave. God directed him to it. This is the the providence of God in moving Saul into that moment right there in front of David and his men. So here's the question though. Will David act on this moment? We need to be very careful sometimes. We, We need to be very careful about allowing providential circumstances to be the ultimate determination of the will of God. Just because the circumstances are providential doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want to do. That doesn't give you the green light to act in whatever way you want to act. The ultimate uh, determination of the will of God is what? The word of God. Circumstances can give us indicators, but we ultimately, before we act on any given situation, need to ask ourselves, is this biblical? Is this right? And so here is David and his men, and Saul is placed before them by the hand of God on a platter. And here's the test. Here's the temptation. Will David compromise on the word of God in order to achieve the ultimate purpose of God in other words does the end justify the means if you think about this there was another individual who was pushed out into a wilderness for 40 days 40 nights And he didn't eat. I was reading that again this week. We oftentimes we read that and think that Jesus went on some spiritual journey of fasting. No, you want to know the reason Jesus didn't eat for 40 days? Because God didn't provide. God withheld provision from his son, put him in a place of testing. You remember the first test was turn the stones into bread? Trusting God's provision. David's had a test with that. He didn't do very well. The second test... God says he loves you. Throw yourself from this temple and 
Let the angels catch you. Make God prove that he loves you. You ever been in a situation where you're wondering, if God loves me, why am I in such a bad situation? And really what you're saying is, God, if you love me, why don't you prove it? Does God need to prove his love to us? I think he did a pretty good job proving it when he sent his son Jesus down across for our sins. And he's declared that he loves us. We take him on the basis of his word. You remember Jesus won't fall into that temptation. You think David's had moments in the midst of this? Read the Psalms. He had moments where he thinks God's, he asks questions, God, why? If, you, if I'm your anointed, why is it so hard right now? David didn't do so good there, although he ultimately trusted God. But the third temptation, you remember, that Jesus experienced, the third temptation was what? Satan takes him out and says, here's all the kingdoms of the world. They can be yours. Just bend the knee to me. Did God promise Jesus the nations of the world? Yes, Psalm 2. Ask of me and I'll surely give you the nations as your inheritance. God told you that it's all going to be yours. The temptation was you can have the crown without going through the cross. I'm, what Satan was offering Jesus was the opportunity to have the kingdoms without submission to the will of God. You remember Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. David is facing the same temptation. Did God promise David that he'd be king? Yeah. Here's the question. Will he compromise in order to achieve what God has promised? It's such a temptation in our world today to trust God not just for the ends but the means, to trust God not just for the purpose but the plan and the way in which God has ordained things, to trust God's timing. If you wanna put a scripture outside of this, it would be seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things will be added to me. You trust in me. Uh, David was saying in Psalm 37, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him. So David is, is got a test here. Is he gonna trust not only God's promise, but will he trust God's plan and will he trust God's timing? Well, let's look what David does. Verse four, then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. So David gets up in this moment. I don't think David had any intention of harming uh, King Saul physically. I don't think that was his intention by arising up. And, and, and the picture here, we often, I don't know how you picture this in your mind. These are not fun pictures to get in your mind. But the, the idea is that Saul takes off his robe and then goes to use the restroom, but he leaves his robe over there. So I think sometimes we picture this as David sneaking right up on Saul. The picture is he left his robe there and he went on and, and David sneaks over. And, but he's close and he's got a knife in his hand. And he cuts off the, the, the hem of his garment. A lot of conjecture of what this means and David cutting off the hem of the garment. We don't really know why David does it or his motivation behind it. But what we do know is how David responds to it. How does David respond? Well, look in verse five. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. 
So David, we're going to find out real quick. He, he knows that you cannot stretch out your hand against the Lord's anointed. To kill Saul in this moment would be sin. Saul is still God's king regardless of whether or not he's walking with God. God has established him as king. You don't lay your hands on the Lord's anointed. He knows that. So David doesn't go up there to kill him, but he, he cuts off the edge of his garment and he comes back and immediately, uh, some translations say, and I, I prefer this better, it says his heart smote him. That's called a guilty conscience. You ever have this happen? It, it, you, you say something or you do something in the moment, you don't feel it, but you begin to walk away and immediately there's conviction in your heart. It's like somebody shoves a knife right in your heart. And you know in that moment, I sinned. Now what's interesting about this is David does not, according to the letter of the law, he does not physically harm King Saul. But I love this about David. David is not a man who simply follows the letter of the law. He's gonna follow the spirit of the law. And he knows what he did was dishonoring to a man that God has established as an authority. And he has a sensitive heart and conscience to sin. I pray that God would give us sensitive hearts to sin. That the slightest movement away from God would convict us in our heart and we'd be moved to turn in repentance and walk in fellowship with God. So David takes step one, maybe step two, but then he experiences conviction. He says, I ain't taking step three. That, that sin has a process in our hearts. But when we experience conviction, we cut it off at that moment. It's called the Barney Fife nip it in the bud mentality. If you don't know Barney Fife nip in the bud, God help you. Go watch Andy Griffith, please. But when we experience that conviction, we stop dead in our tracks. And we say, I'm not going any further. And God, I've transgressed against you. I've sinned against you, and we repent and move. I, I was reading this, and I was studying it, and I had to show my son yesterday my favorite movie. You guys know It's a Wonderful Life, Christmas movie, but it's a great movie. Any season, great movie. Biblical principles running all through that. But you remember Mr. Potter makes an offer to George Bailey. George Bailey's impoverished, building it alone, helping a lot of people, but he's living in poverty. He's trying to do the right thing for a lot of people. He's servant-hearted, humble, always giving his way of life his life away for other people and the benefit of them and yet he just keeps getting lower and lower and Potter brings him in because Potter can't beat him and Potter decides I can't beat him I might as well get him on my team so Potter's going to hire him he makes an offer to him George won't you work for me how would you like to make $20,000 a year remember George drops a cigar $20,000 a year living in a nice home taking a couple of European vacations buying your Wife, some nice things. You know what it is? It's Satan just luring him in. You can have all this stuff, but you've got to compromise and partner with evil. We ever get that temptation? You can have all these things, but you don't have to compromise on the truth. You have to give a little bit. You have to give up your character. You have to do some things you don't want to do, but you can have all these things. And Potter begins to reel him in. And then that moment comes. Is it a deal or not? He puts out his hand. George Bailey reached out his hand, and as soon as he touches his hands, if you put a scripture out there, it would say his heart smote him. Remember that moment? And he, he goes silent, and he begins to shake, 
And he says, no, he puts his hand, doggone it, I don't have to think about it. No, you sit there, you spin your little web, and you think the world revolves around you in the grand scheme of things. You're nothing but a scurvy little spider. It goes for you, and you too. But basically, he says, he, got, he took step one. But he says, no, I'm not going to compromise. I'd rather be poor and broke than compromise in evil and sin. And that is what David does here. God, if you want me to continue to suffer, I'll suffer, but I'm not going to compromise. I will not be unfaithful. Do you have that heart today? God, I know what you've promised me. You promised me eternity in heaven. And that will come to fruition. One day, all these other things will be added to me. But sometimes we want some of those things now, don't we? And the temptation comes to compromise in order to get what God has promised in the future. Listen to me, we need to have a heart that says, God, I'll be faithful regardless of what it, what it costs. Psalm 37, David says, better is, um, better is little poverty among the righteous than abundance among the wicked. David said, I'm not going to compromise. And so he, 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 he turns, verse 6, he said to his men, far be it from, from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. David publicly confesses his sin. He tells to all his guys, they've watched him do this. They've seen him do it. He knows it's wrong and he tells them it's wrong. He says, God forbid I do this. This is not right. He tells all his guys, it's not right. I'm not going to do this. Then look what it says in verse seven. This is the part I love. David persuaded. That word persuaded, our English translations don't do it justice. The, the Hebrew, the, the, the gist of the Hebrew is he tore into his men. Because you know what his men are probably thinking? I, in fact, I guarantee you this was said because it's what I would have said. David, we understand you're gonna be king. You don't want blood on your hands. You can't do this kind of activities, but I'll do it. You don't wanna kill him? I will because I'm tired of living in these caves. I'll, I'll do it. Well, David says he persuaded his men uh, with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. David says, listen, it's wrong. I'm not going to do it. Now, remember, these are 600 men. There are 600 voices saying, David, go kill him. We'll go kill him. David is one guy. You want a good word for young men and women today that are seeking to live for Christ in the midst of an evil and perverse generation. You be that one person who stands on the word of God and says, I'm not gonna compromise. It's not right, and I'm not gonna abide other people in my presence compromise on the word of God either. That's a man or woman of faith and trust in the word of God. I'm not moving. You can call me old-fashioned. You can call me weird. You can call me whatever you want to do. But I'm not doing it. And if you're going to run with me, you're not going to do it either. That's not the way we act. Man, what a powerful witness there David is. And it says in verse 8, Now afterwards David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. What a powerful picture. I initially looked at this. David, uh, did, just kind of read past these things, but Picture so much of this as I just try to picture these things that are happening. Saul's leaving the cave. 
David says, we're not going to act, we're not going to touch him. We're not going to do that. And then David decides to follow after him. David's only got 600 men. They're a misfit band of rebels. Saul's got 6,000 men that are trained soldiers. David goes out and prostrates himself before the king. He is fully exposed. He could be killed in that moment. I mean, he is, he's basically running out in front of him and saying, shoot me now. What is their sole purpose? They've gone out there to do what? One purpose, kill David. David walks out in front of them and bows and prostrates himself to the king. What kind of man? You look at this logically and you say, that's the dumbest tactical move David could do. Listen to me. When you have a clean conscience before God, when you are walking in fellowship and obedience with God, you don't have anything to be afraid of. There is no safer place to be in all the world than living in submission to God's word. I don't care where you're at or what you're doing. There's no safer place to be than in submission to God's word. And when you're living in submission to God's word and you're following him and you know that God is with you, the question is who could be against you? Do you know what I think David's learning? Listen, God's told me I'm gonna be king. Why should I be afraid of this guy? I'm gonna go out here and talk to him. And so David walks out in front of him. Isn't it a good thing to have a clean conscience before God? To lay your head on the pillow at night knowing that as best you can, not that you're perfect, but that you're seeking to walk in fellowship and obedience to God's word. You can't put a price tag on that. That's David. I'm living clean before God. I'm not perfect, but I'm following him and I'm not gonna be scared of my circumstances. He walks out, he addresses Saul, and he, he, he really points out three things to King Saul. Look at what he says. David said to Saul in verse nine, why do you listen to the words of men saying, behold, David seeks to harm you? So he says, you're getting some bad advice. David got bad advice, didn't he? Go kill King Saul, but he didn't listen. Saul's getting bad advice, but he's listening. And uh, so in verse 10, he says, behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you uh, today into my hand in the cave and some said kill you but my eye had pity on you and I said I will not stretch out my hand against uh, my Lord for he is the Lord's anointed. The first thing that David points out to Saul is the sovereignty of God. I love this. (laughs) David says to Saul, he's telling Saul, do you not see that God put you in my cave today? I think Saul thinks he's in control. I think Saul thinks, I'm king, I can do whatever I wanna do. And you know what David's reminding him? No, 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 you only do what God tells you to do. It's funny to me, so many people, that one of the reasons that they won't trust Christ is, is they'll say, well, I'm not, I'm not ready to give the Lord control of my life. Can I let you in on something today? You're, he, God is in control of your life whether or not you wanna acknowledge it or not. He ain't waiting on your permission to do what he wants to do. And so it is with Saul. This is David saying, God just maneuvered you over like one of his chess pieces and put you right into my hand. Saul, you're not in control. God is. And then David reminds Saul of his own innocence. Look at what he says in verse 11. Now my father, see indeed, The edge of your robe is in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, no, and perceive that there's no evil or rebellion in my hands, and 
I've not sinned against you, though you are lying and wait for my life to take it. So he says to King Saul, I'm blameless. I, he's just showing him once again, your, eyes, your own eyes have seen this. Now, can you imagine this? David, Saul doesn't know that he's cut off a piece of his robe. And uh, so here is David, uh, I'm not trying to harm you. And oh, by the way, here's a little piece of your robe. Can you imagine King Saul looking at his robe like, whoa, hey. Guy was closer than I thought. He got pretty close and he had a knife in his hand. You don't think that King Saul started to shake a little bit in that moment. Because King Saul knows if the roles had been reversed, David wouldn't have walked away from that moment. What's interesting, you're going to see a change in King Saul. You're going to see, you're going to see conviction, I should say. You're going to see emotion. You're going to see superficial repentance. But it won't come by David forcing it. It'll, become, it'll come because David is compassionate and gracious to King Saul. Doesn't it remind you of our Lord who says, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance? You really want to heap burning coals on your enemy? Love them. Kill them with kindness. David is respectful and he says, I'm, I'm blameless, I'm innocent, I had the opportunity, I didn't do it. And then the final thing that he calls upon is the judge, judgment of God. Now this is interesting, verse 12, may the Lord judge between you and me, may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog, a single flea. Therefore, the Lord, therefore, be judge and decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David says, God's going to judge you and me. It's interesting because when we talk about the judgment of God, we don't talk about it as something that we long for most often. We don't say, boy, God, come judge me. It's not something we typically would say, God, we really want. But listen to me. The fact of the matter is, for those of us that truly know Jesus Christ, our personal Lord and Savior, when we're pressed into a corner in the midst of trials and difficulty and when we're in the midst of a, maybe a situation where we're being persecuted, when we seek the Lord, we seek him primarily as our refuge. But the second thing we seek him as is our judge. See, when we're walking blamelessly with, with God, when we're seeking to follow his path in righteousness, we do want the judgment of God, don't we? I mean, how many times do we see today evil and wickedness being uh, perpetrated in our world today and does our blood not start to boil a little bit? I was reading an article this week. I got fired up mad. I mean, it's just like you see this stuff happening and you say, God, judge this evil. Vindicate your truth. There are people out there just spreading lies. Lying, lying. and so easy. And we say, God, vindicate the truth. Bring forth your judgment. Put down evil. Put down wickedness. And that's what David's calling for here. He's saying, God, I'm doing my best to walk in blamelessness. But there is a man here walking in wicked and evil. And I'm prepared for you to be the judge, not me. There's two things that we see in David that are so critical for all of us to remember. Number one, I love the way that you see in David a respect for authority. An authority that God has established. Remember, King Saul is king because Lord ordained him and God established him as king. All the authorities in our life, whether we like them or not, 
we must recognize they've been established by the sovereign hand of God. Right? Do we believe that? We better believe that. We got problems. Come see me after service. We'll talk to you. God has ordained every authority in this world. Now, that doesn't mean that God condones their activities or what they do. It doesn't mean that we agree with them. There's a lot of authorities in this world. I don't like their policies or their character of their life. But I must recognize that God has established them as authority, and I must respect their authority. And you've heard me use this illustration before. A police officer pulls you over this afternoon. You don't ask him if he's had his daily quiet time. Because it doesn't matter whether or not he's been reading his Bible and obeying Jesus. He is an authority that God has established in your life and you're to respect him. As an ordained authority of God. And that's what David demonstrates here. David doesn't agree with the way that Saul is behaving. But he knows this. As long as Saul is king, it's because God has established him as king. And as long as he is king, I may not salute the person, but I salute the rank. Isn't that what they say in the military? You salute the rank, not the person. The position, not the possession. God has put him in this position, I'm gonna respect him. It's so critical, one of the marks of God's men and women in this world is submission. If you don't learn submission, you're in for a world of hurt, ultimate submission to God, and then to the authorities that God has ordained. The second thing you see in David is that David entrusts vengeance to God. This is so critical. David entrusts vengeance to God. There's a clear print, something you see here. It's called justified retaliation. David has been mistreated and he's done nothing wrong. And we might say to him, listen, you're justified in killing this guy. He's treated you wrongly. But you know what David understands the Lord says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God says, vengeance looks good on me. It don't look good on you. That's not your job. You entrust vengeance to me. You trust me to put, put down evil and wickedness. Now, does this mean that, number one, we don't report evil? No, we do. If you see abuse or involved in it, you report it. Guess who you report it to? the authorities established by God, and oftentimes it's the authority established by God by which he brings his vengeance on evil. That's what government is supposed to do, threaten evildoers and bless the righteous. And it also doesn't mean that we say we see evil and wickedness and injustice and we just lay back and say, oh, isn't that good? Have you read the Psalms? I've been camping out. David writes, Psalm um, 57, 142, in the midst of this situation and uh, in this cave. You read them. You know what David says in those prayers? God slay the wicked and shatter their teeth. You know, is that biblical? Well, it is because God recorded it in his word. Is that not how? Listen, that, that's been some of my prayers this week. God cut them down. Punch them in the mouth. But do you know the reason it's biblical? It's because I'm entrusting it to who? To God. Listen, if you don't see evil, wickedness, and injustice, and something doesn't rise up and boil in your blood, then something's wrong with you. And we pray, God, bring your judgment on those who are harmed, on children that are 
perpetrated against an evil and wickedness, God, bring your judgment. But I entrust it to you, and I know that you will. You'll expose it one day. We see that in David. And then we, we get on to the end of this. Look, look here. Um, verse 16, when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Saul hears David speaking, and he begins to weep. He experiences conviction. David experienced conviction, didn't he? He experienced conviction. Now Saul's experiencing conviction, and he's weeping. He's shedding some tears. I've seen a lot of men shed a lot of tears over sin. But I have learned in my time of ministry that tears are not always a good indicator of true repentance. Repentance is not crying over your sin. True repentance is changing. So Saul shed some tears and he said in verse 17 to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt with me, well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Now, behold, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. It's so interesting. Saul declares here, you're a better man than I. What did God say to Saul after he had rebelled against God and did not obey the Lord's voice? Samuel said to King Saul that the kingdom is going to be cut off from you and given to someone who is better than you. And here Saul declares it. You know what I think Saul realizes? I think he already knew it. David is the guy who's going to be king. In fact, he says it here. It's the first time he's declared it. Jonathan told us that my dad knows you're going to be king. But here King Saul declares it in front of 6,000 men openly and publicly, David, you're going to be king. Isn't it amazing? A man walking in rebellion and sin will declare the truthfulness of God's word. I was reminded this week, the word of God is the word of God regardless of who speaks it. You can be walking in sinful rebellion but the word of God is the word of God. If God can speak through a donkey, he can speak through evil King Saul, and Saul's gonna declare the truth that David, you will be king. Do you not think that was an encouraging moment for David? His enemy, who God delivered into his hand this moment, David says, I'm gonna trust you, God. I'm not gonna take it by evil means. I will not compromise. I'm gonna trust in you. He confronts King Saul, and Saul says to everybody, this guy's gonna be king. Yeah, the bottom line is in this story, you see two individuals. You see one who's convicted of sin, David, who will turn in repentance and faith. He'll change the direction of his life. He will not continue to walk in sin. He'll change. That is true repentance. That's true faith. That's the mark of a true believer. We experience in conviction and we turn and we walk away from it. If you are in Christ Jesus this morning, listen to me. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you and the Holy Spirit inside of you will convict you of sin. It's one of the true marks of a believer of God is that they experience conviction of sin. And God will complete you. He will carry you on to completion. We call it the, the perseverance of the saints, that what God starts, God will finish. There, 
there's a lot of people out there say, well, boy, if you tell people that they're saved no matter what, if they truly believe the Lord, they're saved no matter what, and God will carry them on, then, then they'll just continue, they'll just sin and live however they want to live. Listen to me, no, they will not. See, it's not that a Christian shouldn't sin, it's that a Christian can't continue to live in sin because the Holy Spirit of God will pierce them in their heart and will draw them back to himself. David is convicted and he turns, he changes. Saul, on the other hand, is a man who is convicted superficially, will give a superficial depiction of repentance and sorrow for his sin, but he will not change. How do we know? Some of you probably already read on. He's gonna go right back to his wicked ways. In fact, he'll end up pursuing a witch. He's gonna continue to try to kill David. He will not submit to God. He'll bow his neck neck to God. I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do. I'm gonna live however I wanna live. And so if you're here today, the question is, where are you at? If you know the Lord, you're gonna experience conviction in your heart from time to time. True repentance will cause you to change, to go a different direction. Some of you have experienced conviction And maybe you've had moments of superficial spirituality and maybe shed a few tears, but you know in your heart there's never been a rebirth and there's never been a true change. You know, Peter says, you want to know the mark of a true believer or if somebody doesn't know the Lord, puts it in pretty graphic terms, he says a dog will return to his vomit and the pig will return to the mud, meaning... You can take a pig and superficially clean it up, put a bow in its hair and put nice perfume on it. But you release that pig, where's he gonna go? He's gonna go to the mud. Why? Because he's still a pig. And dog, they're dogs. They do what dogs do. The only way that changes if they, is if somehow internally they change their nature. The only way for us to go a different direction is that God rebirths us from the inside out and gives us a new nature that begins to walk in a new direction marked by repentance and faith and obedience. Doesn't mean that we don't step off from time to time and do something sin, but we experience conviction and we get back on the path. As I say, it's not that sin doesn't call anymore, but it calls less often. And when it does, we hang up quickly and walk back to God. But if you're here this morning and you are under the burden of a guilty conscience before God, and know this, we're all guilty, amen? We've all sinned against a holy God. We should all experience the guilt of sin in our hearts at some point or another. But if you're there today and you are being burdened down by the guilt of your sin and your shame, can I tell you, we serve a savior who says, come to me, all you who are weary. If you are weary by the burden of a guilty conscience, today, can I tell you, you can have the slate wiped clean. You can have the righteousness of God imputed to your account on the basis of faith. You can become a new creation in Christ Jesus. You don't have to be who you are. You can be made new through faith in Jesus Christ. You trust in Christ and you repent. You change the direction And he who began a good work in you will carry you on to completion. And listen to me. There's no greater peace in all this world 
than to know the peace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, Lord, I, I pray that your word has penetrated lost hearts today. If there's somebody here that doesn't know you, by your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict them of sin and you would draw them even now. Lord, we know that salvation is your work. And so I plead with you, just as it was in our lives, those of us who knew you, you came to us in a moment where you exposed our sin by means of your spirit and your word. And you showed us the beauty of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we, we ran to you. And I pray that there would be somebody today that would run to you. You'd overwhelm them by your grace and your mercy and your kindness would lead them to repentance. They would know the joy and the peace of a clean slate and peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we would trust in you with all of our heart. We'd lean not upon our own understanding in all our ways. We'd acknowledge you and you would make our path straight. I pray that we would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing that all these other things will be added unto us. I pray that we would delight ourselves in the Lord, knowing that you'll give us the desires of our heart. Lord, help us to trust in you. Give us Give us a backbone of steel on the basis of your word and your spirit so that we would not compromise in any way. But we trust you not only with the end, but with the means. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.